an introduction to care and assistance claims in personal injury litigation. You're listening to The Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to part two of this four-part mini-series in which we're discussing the common types of claims that come up in personal injury and clinical negligence litigation. My name's Vaughan Jacob, I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, and over the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to cover the following issues. Firstly, the legal basis for care and assistance claims. Secondly, the types of care regime recoverable. Thirdly, how a care claim is calculated. Fourthly, what evidence is required. And fifthly, to sum up from the defendant's perspective, how a care regime may be challenged. Dealing with the first issue, the legal basis for care and assistance claims. Damages for personal injury are compensatory and intended so far as money can to put the claimant in the same financial position as if the accident never happened. Following an injury whilst the claimant is recovering and recuperating, a claim may be advanced for the cost of care provided by another in respect of tasks the claimant can't do because of the injury. The categories of care aren't closed, but services rendered commonly include physical nursing care, such as washing, dressing, brushing teeth, mobility assistance, such as helping the claimant get in and out of a vehicle, domestic chores, such as cooking, cleaning and ironing, DIY or home maintenance, childcare, if there's been a psychological or brain injury, managing the claimant's finances and affairs. Claims are often made for walking the dog. As long as the claimant can argue that the service is reasonably required and has been reasonably incurred as a result of the defendant's negligence, then a claim may be advanced. A claim can be made for both past loss of care costs already incurred by the time of trial and future loss by estimating what care will be needed as the claimant gets older. Now there are, of course, limits to such a claim. The claim for care must have been caused by the accident, as opposed to any pre-existing or coterminous condition which also requires care. And the claimant's under a duty to mitigate his or her loss, i.e. not to act unreasonably, having regard to all the circumstances. The bar for judging the claimant's actions is not high, and will be judged objectively, i.e. what would a reasonable man have done in the claimant's position, taking into account only matters known at the time the care was provided, and ignoring the benefit of hindsight. Reasonableness will involve consideration of the following factors. The nature and severity of the claimant's injuries. A claimant with a broken leg and a cast may require some help until the cast is removed, but not thereafter. A claimant who suffered a substantial brain injury, meanwhile, may require lifetime care. The suitability of the care regime to fit the claimant's needs. Does the regime cover things that the claimant could reasonably manage on his own? Whether the claimant benefits from the care regime. Can it be said to be a genuine aid to the claimant's recovery? And are there any cheaper alternatives? Does the claimant actually need a paid carer to look after him, or could the care have been provided more cheaply by another, such as a relative? That brings us on to the second topic. What types of care regime are recoverable? Generally, care will either be provided gratuitously, that is, by family or friends, or professionally, under a private care regime. The most common type of care claim you'll encounter in low to mid-value personal injury claims is a gratuitous claim. The majority of people injured won't be able to pay for their own private carer, but rely on friends and relatives to help them instead. 
There's no threshold test of recovery, but guidance was given in the case of Jambroni and JMC Holidays Limited, a 2004 Court of Appeal case, in which a number of claimants suffered from gastroenteritis on holiday and were subsequently looked after by their relatives. In that case, Lord Justice Brooke considered a claim advanced in respect of the care provided by those relatives, and he held as follows. Anyone who has had responsibility for the care of a child with gastroenteritis of the severity experienced by these children will know that they require care which goes distinctly beyond that which is part of the ordinary regime of family life. Now that last phrase, distinctly beyond the ordinary regime of family life, is now regularly deployed in counter schedules, requiring the claimant to prove the care provided went beyond the normal domestic routine. So for example, a claimant can't claim for a family member cooking for him if that same family member did all the cooking before the accident in any event. Some other important points to note in respect of gratuitous care. Where the care is provided gratuitously, the loss belongs to the carer and not the claimant. And the authority for that is a case called Hunt and Severs, 1994 case. The claimant's recovering compensation on the carer's behalf and any damages recovered by the claimant are to be held on trust for the carer. The claimant must prove, therefore, that he intends to repay the damages received in respect of care back to the carer. If the care was provided by an ex-partner or a friend who the claimant has since fallen out with, then it's likely the recovery on trust will not be honoured and therefore there can be no award for damages. If the defendant himself is responsible for causing the claimant's injuries, there can be no claim for care since a claimant would be recovering damages for the defendant to hold on trust for the defendant. This would be contrary to public policy. The defendant shouldn't benefit from his own wrongdoing. Finally, care provided must be a genuine aid to the claimant's recovery, rather than facilitating social contact, which would have occurred in any event. And the authority for that is Huntley and Simmons, a 2009 High Court case. In that case, Lord Justice Underhill rejected a claim by visiting family members whilst the claimant was in hospital. The judge found the visits arose out of family affection and not for the purposes of providing care services, which the hospital was more than able to do. However, it's not authority uh, for any, any claimant's relatives who visit them in hospital. In the Huntley case, the claimant was in a coma for much of the time and the judge found that he wasn't aware of the relatives uh, being present and providing care. Often relatives visit claimants in hospital to provide emotional support, and that is possibly recoverable, provided the claimant can prove the support wouldn't have been provided in the absence of the accident. We've dealt with gratuitous claims. The other type of care regime you'll encounter is a claim for private care. This is a claim for care for services provided professionally. Such a regime is usually only justified in cases involving more serious injuries. They may involve a single carer, carers working shifts, or an agency providing care. The claim can include uh, the cost of sourcing, training and providing for a carer, holiday and sickness pay, and accommodation in the more serious cases. Again, the claimant will need to prove the costs are reasonable and the regime reasonably fits the claimant's needs. Moving to the third topic, how is the care claim calculated? In respect of a private regime, the task is somewhat easier. Invoices, receipts of payment need to be produced and the court will consider whether they've been reasonably incurred. In respect of gratuitous care, where a carer hasn't given up paid employment, 
The award is usually determined by reference to the number of hours provided per day or per week, applying the commercial cost of care to that figure, and then discounting the total to reflect the savings made by the fact it was provided gratuitously. In terms of the period of care, there's no straitjacket on the court. It can award as many hours as it's considered reasonable. The court can and often does apply a broad brush approach. In minor cases of physical injury, the award will not generally exceed one to three hours per day in the initial period, decreasing as time goes by and as the claimant recovers. However, in an extreme case, this may be 24 hours a day, as it was in Evans and Pontypridd Reefing Limited, a 2001 Court of Appeal case. In that case, even though care wasn't provided for every one of those 24 hours, the claimant's wife was on a suicide watch because the claimant had suffered from clinical depression. And on this basis, a full-time carer was justified. Once the hours have been calculated, the hourly rate then needs to be considered. The hourly rate applied will vary from case to case. In the past, many rates were used, but now there is near uniformity in taking rates derived from the local authority, Spinal Point 8, of the National Joint Council for Local Government Services. You can find those rates helpfully listed in facts and figures. There are two rates, a basic rate and an aggregate rate. The basic rate is the starting point and assumes that care is not provided at antisocial hours. The aggregate rate is a professional rate, including charges for working weekends, evenings and bank holidays. It's only appropriate when care is spread out throughout all the hours of the week and at day and night. The odd hour here and there in the evening will not justify the aggregate rate. It's not an either or scenario. The different rates can be used in different periods. So some of the care can be claimed at the basic rate and some at the aggregate rate. The current aggregate rate from April 2020 to 31st of March 2021 is £12.39 per hour. The courts apply discount to reflect the gratuitous nature of that care. This is to take into account not only tax, national insurance and travel expenses, but also the fact that the quality of care might be lower than care provided professionally. What's the value of that discount? Case law suggests that rates can range anywhere between 35 to 20%. There's no scientific basis or mathematical answer. In practice, a 25% discount is generally used. If that 25% discount is applied to the uh, aggregate and basic rate already discussed, the aggregate rate becomes £9.29 per hour and the basic rate £8.58 per hour. What evidence is needed to prove a care claim? Witness evidence from all those who provided care, detailing the number of hours spent and the tasks they carried out is extremely useful. The more detail, the better. The courts are used to seeing broad brush pleadings for care without any specific detail or breakdown of what in fact was provided. Where the injuries are more serious, a professional care expert is commonly instructed, not only to attest to the past care regime, but also to give the court guidance about the care needs in the future. They can also provide detail on aids and appliances which might reduce the need for future care. One word of caution in respect of expert reports, although they can be very useful, the judge isn't bound by the conclusions therein and won't simply prefer the claimant's report over the defendant's report and award those figures in full. Due to the nature of litigation, the claimant's reports often produce artificially high figures and likewise the defendant's figures are often artificially low. It's therefore important to cross-reference the number of hours referred to in an expert report with those claimed in the witness statements, the schedule, the counter schedule, and it's not uncommon for a judge to pick certain aspects from both reports. 
Turning to the fifth and final topic, how can a care regime be challenged? From a defendant's perspective, and to sum up what we've been talking about over the last 10 minutes, you need to be looking at the following. The burden is on the defendant to prove the claimant could have mitigated his or her loss. This should be specifically pleaded. You need to look at causation. Was the care claim due to some pre-existing condition or coterminous condition and not due to the accident itself? In respect of any tasks it said the claimant can't do, such as gardening, DIY, personal care, is this supported by medical evidence? In cases of gratuitous care, does the care provided go distinctly beyond the regime of ordinary family life? Is the basic rate of care or aggregate rate more appropriate? Has an appropriate discount been applied to gratuitous care, usually 25%? Is there an overlap between gratuitous care, care in hospital and paid care? If the care is being provided by an agency, could the cost be reduced by employing a carer directly? And is the care claim supported by witness evidence of the caregiver? The claimant holds the money on trust for the caregiver. In the absence of any evidence from the caregiver that they want to pursue that loss, that claim for care may fail in its entirety. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.